Before we get to the podcast this week, I continue to be amazed, and I really do mean this, at the offering that you have with Flow Racing and Dirt on Dirt. We are nearly 1,200 live events on the Flow Racing Network, and if you're a Dirt on Dirt subscriber, you get access to Flow Racing for free. All of that for 150 bucks, so you get 1,200 live events for 150 bucks. And if you're a Dirt on Dirt subscriber, like I said, you get to access Flow for free on top of all the DoD content you get. It doesn't work the other way yet. The Flow subscription does not get you access to DoD, but trust me, I am working on that. I will eventually make that happen so they completely cross over. We used to do a segment called Shameless Plugs on Late Model Live, the Late Model show that we used to do where I shamelessly plugged our own stuff. And I would always kind of apologize for it. Hey, I know I'm, I'm plugging our own stuff. It's shameless. I'm sorry. But I'm not apologizing anymore for it. What you get with DoD and Flow, the Chili Bowl, All-Stars, Eldora, it's nuts. The value is nuts. And lastly, speaking of Eldora, just a little teaser here. I'm going out on a limb. The World 100 coverage we are about to have in September will be the best live broadcast we have ever done in the history of our company, DoD Orflow. The stuff we have planned, specifically that Turn and his crew, DMAC, and those guys have planned for the 50th and 51st World 100, I am so excited and happy about. People know that I love Eldora more than anything or anywhere else. So you know for the 50th World 100, we are about to go ham on this thing. I'm not going to say too much more, but I'm giddy about it. Point being, DOD flow, 150 bucks. Coverage is unbelievable. And get ready and get locked in for that World 100 coverage. Just over a month away, month and a half, hard to believe. All right, here we go. And most importantly, welcome to DirtOnDirt.com. This is your Rigsby Report for the week of July 19th, and we've got a tough act to follow. Mark Richards, the last podcast that we did, became the most listened-to podcast across all of our offerings in DirtOnDirt.com history. Number one ever. And I could kind of tell midway through that interview with Mark, it had potential to be really good. He was going places that he does not always go. And that's kind of the spirit of why I started the Rigsby Report. Take people who are really interesting and get them to talk about the things they might not normally talk about in an in-depth way. Mark crossed all of those T's and dotted all of those I's. And the result was massive listenership and something I think will resonate for a really long time with people. I just wanted to to recap and throw back to, to how impressive uh, the numbers that Mark put up a couple of weeks ago. This week, this one is a little more personal to me. Most know, uh, I should say most that know me, know that I am uh, a John Gill fan by heart. John Gill was my favorite driver as a kid. John Gill was sort of my first love in dirt late model racing. If you ask me now, you know, I'd probably say Shannon Babb is my favorite all-time driver. I'm an Illinois guy. I love the Babs. I love Shannon. But in my formative years, when I was coming up, starting my love affair with dirt late model racing, the cowboy from Mitchell, Indiana, was my guy. I was in a house full of Bob Pierce and Kevin Weaver fans, and I liked those guys too, but Gil was my end-all, be-all as a young race fan. The cowboy hat, the big smile, the personality that, let's be honest, not many guys had a personality like John Gill 
was when he was in his heyday. And as I think you'll hear in this interview, he still does have that personality, whether it was seeing him at Eldora or his home track of Brownstown or Florence or hell, even, you know, my home state of Illinois, when he come up to Fairbury and LaSalle and Farmer City, we would follow that Indiana one in the black 75 uh, everywhere he went, we would follow. He was a big deal in the Rigsby household, and quite frankly, I am honored to get to interview him today. There was a lot about him that I didn't know that I dive into with him. I mean, I was a fan, but researching for this, I really found out a lot of things that made me like this guy even more. And some of the stuff I just was not aware of at all. It's about an hour, and John, even after all these years, still has that great sense of humor and that great wit. Uh, that, that made James Essex call him the most popular driver in the history of Brownstown Speedway in Indiana. Those are big words from a guy like James and given the guys that raced at Brownstown. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to it, and I hope, I hope you're going to enjoy it. Something quick before we get to the Cowboy. I've spoken on this podcast a few times about the merging relationship of NASCAR and short track racing, specifically dirt track racing, and how the two things are coming closer and closer. Obviously, you know, we tip our hat to Kyle Larson for having such a huge impact on that singularly. He's likely one of the biggest, if not the biggest reason for the convergence. But I was on a trip a few weeks ago. I had some free time during the day, and I flipped on the Dale Earnhardt Jr. Peacock Series Lost Speedways that he does with Matthew Dillner and a friend of mine, Bobby Marcos, who is the son of late model historian Bob Marcos. And I'd love to work with Bobby and Matt both at some point. For whatever reason, I had not watched the series before. I'd heard about it, and I heard specifically about the Pinsboro episode. There was an episode about Pinsboro, of course, the famous dirt track in West Virginia, and I wanted to check it out. And I have to admit, I, I, I was totally enthralled. Not only did I appreciate the production quality and the attention to detail, but watching Dale Jr. walk around West Virginia at Pinsboro and him talking about Jim Dunn and Freddie Smith and to see my good friend Carl Short on the screen as part of this really cool series that is being viewed by hundreds of thousands of people. I I'm sure there have been other convergence moments that have happened over the last decade and the last couple of years for, for NASCAR and for Dirt Track, but something about this Pinsboro Lost Speedways episode to me was the peak apex moment of the holy shit, the folks at the highest levels of motorsports are kind of paying attention to not only what we do, but the history uh, behind how we got here, specifically at Pennsboro. And that history plays a huge part in late model racing. You know, I, of course, went on to watch every single episode of season one and two. I recommend that you do the same. They're incredibly well done. And I just wanted to share that on a personal note. Uh, to NASCAR, I'll say, you know, it's about damn time. Uh, what, we've be, what we've been doing over here in the short track space really only benefits you. And without question, you're stronger when we're stronger. Uh, so help us get stronger, would you? And I'm kind of tying that into what, me watching this Dale Earnhardt Jr. show and thinking to myself, man, this is, I don't know what it was. Something about it just really struck a chord with me. It was probably because it was Pennsboro, and that place means so much to late model people. Uh, and I absolutely loved it. I just wanted to say that before we got to John Gill. All right, here we go with John. You know, I got in trouble with my wife the other night. I had just gotten off the phone with John Gill. I, I pre-interview these guys sometimes before I do the actual interview with them. And I told her a story that I, I swore I had told her in the past. The year was 2000. I had just graduated high school. My buddies and I had road tripped to Beaver Dam, Wisconsin for a Have a Tampa race, a race that Scott Bloomquist won. 
Of course, everybody knows that I'm a huge John Gill fan. John and I know each other. So after the race, I go to the pits to see John. And there's a very attractive young woman who I'd been, let's just say, flirting with all night. John sees this. <laughs> you hear him laughing already. John sees this in the pits, and the girl asks, he looks at John because she doesn't know anything about late model racing, and she says, hey, are you the guy that won the race tonight? And John says, well, yes, young lady, I am. And he looks at me and he says, Michael, why don't you take her up into the hauler and show her the car that won the race tonight? I mean, talk about a talk about a wingman. So, so of course, very graciously, I took this young lady into the hauler. And before everybody's mind runs wild, it was just a little making out, nothing more than that. But John Gill was not only my favorite driver, this guy was the ultimate wingman as well. And I wanted to start this interview with that story. It is one of the many reasons I love John Gill. The modern-day cowboy joins me on the Integra Shocks and Springs hotline now. John, do you remember that night? And also, this is 21 years ago. My wife can't be mad about this anymore, can she? <laughs> I, w- I, w- I wouldn't think so. I'd hope not anyway. Do you remember yeah, that remember, night? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, you, you had a couple of guys with you. Yeah, you, you and two other boys. Yep, I had a couple of guys with me. And uh, like I said, you I don't think any of my friends have ever been as good of a wingman as you were that night. They never helped me that much with girls. <laughs> Oh, I remember it. John, yeah, I, I remember it well. I, and, you know, I love that it was Bloomquist too, right? And you, she had no idea. Scott Bloomquist from Adam, she didn't know. So I, that was my favorite part is that it was Scott as well. So, <laughs> John, I wanted, uh, I wanted to start yeah. with, with the life update, for lack of a better term. For those that may not know, where is John Gill living now? What is John Gill doing now? Take us through all those things. Give us the lowdown for those that might not know. What's going on with John Gill? Tell us all that stuff, bud. All right. Well, I'm I'm living in Mitchell, Indiana, where I've lived since 1980, uh, 87, 88. Um, so um, still here in the same spot, and um, so I haven't been racing for the last couple of years. Um, this will be the second year that I haven't been in a car, and just been working a lot. Um, uh, of course, everyone knew I, I owned the bar for like 28 years. And, and in 09, 08, whenever the economy was bad, everything was bad around town there. And the business was just was horrible. And, and um, just so happened, I got an opportunity to, to sell the place. And, and I sold, sold the bar and uh, went to work um, on and off driving the semi-truck to different places and ended up at a stone mill here in Bedford, Indiana, which Bedford's the home of limestone, the capital, the limestone capital of the world, they call it. And so anyways, I was, I started driving a semi there and, and, and still, still work there, um, driving a truck, uh, home run equipment, just, um, a little bit of everything. And then I got some other stuff I've been doing on my own. I've, I've been, uh, uh, started the endeavor of seal coat and blacktop driveways and parking lots and and that and that's kind of picked up and it's gotten pretty good actually the weather's just been horrible this year and with this pandemic thing no one wants to work it's hard to find anyone to, to work doing it um so i'm always in the search for for a helper or someone to work you know so that's kind of been the kind of been the run of the mill here this year but worse this year than ever 
Well, I can tell you, I used to, my grandfather was a road commissioner for 50 years. Do you need me to come over and help you blacktop some roads? I'm coming. If you need me, I'm there. All right. <laughs> I mean, I mean, don't say it if you don't mean it. That's all I can tell you. <laughs> Fair enough. You know, you mentioned you hadn't been in a car in a couple of years. When was the last time you were in a car? Was it Florence in a crate car? When was it and where was it? Um, I actually, to be honest with you, I don't even know where the last place it was at. I, the last car I drove was for uh, Bruce Sturgeon, um, and it was a crate car. And seems to me like it might have been, um, oh, uh, oh, shoots up northern Indiana, up uh, Sandy, Shady no, Hill, up, Shady uh, Hill, Shady Hill. Okay. Yeah. Sandy Hill, I call it. <laughs> it is Sandy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I asked you the other day, and you cut me off before I could even get this answer out. I said, do you miss it? Would you still race? And you cut me off immediately, and you said, absolutely. I would do it. Is it just a matter of, A, this shit's so expensive, so you don't want to own your own stuff, and B, it's it's hard to find rides to hop into, but you do miss it, and if you could do it, you, you'd still be doing it regularly, I guess, right? I, I would if I had the right opportunity. I mean, I'm there's there's cars that I'm sure – if I wanted to go to the track and hang around, I could find a ride here and there. But I, I honestly, if I wouldn't have a, a car that was capable of winning, would they had a good enough motor and, and good enough equipment that that I felt like I could have an opportunity to win? I, I don't want to go. I just don't want to. I don't want to go. And and with my work schedule right now, I don't have time to just go watch much, you know. And it's just a. Uh, I'd be, I'm just feel better off that I don't go when I, you know, that I'm not there to watch it, you know, so. Gun to your head. Yeah. Do you think you'll ever be in a car again? Will you ever race again, do you think? Um, I, it's a pretty good possibility. Yeah, I think so. That you will. I got, yeah. I have a buddy that's, um, going to build a car. He's just got too much work going on right now. He's been busy and short on help and he's, he's talking about building a car and if he, if he builds this car and puts it together and, and all, I, I'll drive it. Okay. Who is that? It's um, just a buddy from Mitchell there around, around. Brown. No, no. In, in Ohio, Stan Hoover. Okay. Okay. And that'd be a, cr- a crate so, car? Or? No, it'd be an open car. Oh, okay. When's the last time you were in a super late model? Um, it's probably been four years ago now, okay. I'd say. Yeah. John, you are yep. to, you are to me one of those guys that you've got a little bit of that Tim McCready in you that when you you always seem young to me, right? You know, Tim McCready's not that young of a guy anymore, but everybody thinks he's young. And to me, even when you hit your forties and up through your upper forties, you are just a younger guy always in most people's eyes. I think I have this right. I think you'll turn sixty-two in September. Isn't it almost impossible to believe that John Gill's going to be 62 years old? Like, I, you know, I can't get my mind around it almost. Yeah, it's hard to believe. I mean, I, I sometimes kind of question it myself, but I don't I don't really feel 62. I mean, I still get a good day's work in, and I still get moving around good, you know. I don't I don't feel old, you know what I'm saying, as far as that goes. And, um, I, you know, like I said, I just uh, – I've tried to, I don't smoke and I don't, don't do any drugs. And, and I, and I, if I have a beer or something, that'd be it. You know, I'm not a, a drinker per se. Um, and, and, you know, that's all about preserving your body. You know what I'm saying? I try to 
try to do the best I can. Sometimes that you know when I raced and and had the business and everything, it I burnt the candle on both ends and and started in the middle a lot of times, you know, and right. just up for hours on end driving, coming to and from and back home to work, turn around, turn around, leave and you know drive six hours somewhere and race that night and get down at midnight or one o'clock drive home six hours and do my work at the bar and maybe go home and sleep for a couple two or three hours and take back off the next day so you know a guy abuses his body sometimes unintentional you know but with that being said not not intentional it's not a deliberate thing where i where i know i'm going to poison myself or whatever doing drugs and something ignorant you know but uh i've tried to do the best i can but still the age thing it's father time it creeps up on everybody (laughs) well you'll be happy to know and we're going to talk about this a little bit later my mom recently saw a picture of you and my mom said you know what he's just as handsome as he was 30 years ago and i'm like i don't need to hear that mom i don't need (laughs) so so that ought to make you feel good right (laughs) well yeah well ben's ben's we're going go there i'm going to tell i'm going to ask you some questions you're asking me all these questions do you remember the first time the, the first time that i met you uh i mean i'm assuming it was is eldora or brownstown um i would like to hear your take on this i i think it was eldora in the pits and one of my true false questions later because i do these true false questions i'm just going to give it now true or false you used to hit on my mom was one of the true or false questions well no but you have a you have a nice looking mother i ain't gonna say that i, I wouldn't hit on your mom but i, I but your mom, I, you and your mom, I thought the first time I met you was at Fairbury. It, it would have been. Okay, that's right. Yep. It was at Fairbury, and you and your, you was a little young boy, very polite, handsome, kind of shy, <laughs> come back, come, stood back and took your turn, come up, said hi, introduced yourself to me, and, and your mom stood back, and she just kind of like, well, go and say something, kind of coaching you along there, and <laughs> and. And then you left, and then the next time I seen you was somewhere else in Illinois, and and then after that you felt comfortable coming up talking to me, and you was usually with your mom, and 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 you know, and then when you got older, of course, you was with your buddies, and, but <laughs> but always well mannered, very polite. Your parents done well with you. Well, I appreciate that, and we, we'll talk more about uh, my, how pretty my mom is later. All right, we don't need to get into all that right yep. now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I want you to walk me through, you know, and I've been a big fan of yours my entire life, but I wanted to, I was going kind of down history lane and memory lane of the early parts of your career. Can John take me through it a little bit? I think 81 or 82 was the first year you were in a super late model and take, take me through the early parts from call it from there all the way through the Terry Eaglin stuff. Can you take us through as the fans of the audience, what rides you were in and when, cause I was struggling to remember. And I think it's kind of interesting the early parts of your career. Well, I started in July in 1981. Yeah. Um, my uncle and I built a car, um, and my cousins and, and my buddies all pitched in and, and we put together a, a, which would have been a super late model at the time, um, which, in reality, in perspective to today's time, it would be more, more similar to almost a crate car, yeah, really. Yeah. Um, it was a, but it was the best that they had at the time. You know what I'm saying? They had a cast iron block, a 377 cubic inch motor with with aluminum heads on it. 
um, it was a Rayburn chassis and um, it didn't have coilovers on the back. It just had what they call a stack leaf and it didn't have rack and pinion, it had a steering box, which is similar to kind of like a, uh, the chassis was more similar to like a super stock or something in today's times, you know, um, the way, you know, the, the equipment that was sure. available at that time. Bigger tires, of course, but full, you know, blown late model tires and all that. Well, so that that's that was the first car that that I drove, that and I never drove a late model before or anything else other than a go kart, yeah, you know, at, at the fairgrounds. So, um, so that's how I, that was my first first night out was at Brownstown, and um, we went there, and it was about the middle of the season by the time we got the car finished, and um qualified never got any practice or anything we we my uncle was notorious for getting to the track late it was just a it was his his <laughs> way of doing things and we'd show up and practice would be over and, and they was usually calling for qualifying well back then you just got in line when you got over there you know there wasn't no pill draw or anything like that and uh <laughs> so I, so i ended up going out and qualifying and i made one lap and it wasn't of course i was i'd never been in a car before and i and i was conservative well the next lap i get a little braver and i spin out well so i run off the bank and and get back gathered up and go to the pits well so i i start on the start would have started on the front row of a second heat race and I like I'd never been in a car. I didn't want to tear nobody's car up and stuff. So I go tell them, I say, Hey, look, I, I don't want to start in the front. I'm liable to wreck every car out here. So <laughs> put me on the tail. So, so they, they moved me to the tail and they start the race and lo and behold, I end up winning the, the race. So that's the first heat race or the second heat race of that night. I saw, so I won it from the tail. And so that was my first, that was my first race and then we raced that season we raced um three nights a week pretty much back then um you could do it easily around here and we raced at um uh, charleston on friday night charleston indiana which is no longer a track anymore and we'd go to brownstown and if it, it got uh, we had an option if it got rained out you could go different places you know but um and then on sundays um the first part of that year I, we'd go to uh we first time i raced on sunday we went to putmanville okay and and raced up there well then the next week or so we ended up going to hobstock yeah legendary sunday night track yeah yeah and lo and behold i i, I go into hobstock and and of course i'm new at, at everything and I qualified like almost like in the trophy dash. <clears throat> and for whatever reason, Hopstot was just the best track for me at, when I started. I, I qualified well. I raced well there. And so I raced from July till September. And we run three nights a week, you know, here and there, just wherever we could go, pretty much. Um, they And they had an all-star race that year at Perrigan on a Wednesday night or Tuesday night, it was during the week. And we went up there and I ran really good up there and I ended up spinning out in a feature. I was running third. And of course, back then Charlie Swartz was there and, uh, 
Jim Hunt and, and uh, uh, Jack Hewitt was there, I think. And, of course, Ray Gotze was leading the all-star points at that time. And um, so it was a it was a big race for the time, you know. And, and I worked my way to the front, got up to third, and then I ended up spinning out. I finished <laughs> in the top ten, I think. I come from the tailback to like eighth, I believe it was. And um, so I never had to ever want a feature yet. And then at the end of the year, they had the grand finale race at Hobstock, which was back then called the Thrust Industry yep. 100. The Thrust 100, yeah. Like, yeah, it was like a two-day race. And Tommy was racing back then. And uh, he was actually sponsored by that company that put that race on there for his dad. And, um, of course, back back when I was a young start driver, it was a hornet's nest around here because you had several very good drivers. You had you had Ray Gotze, you had Jim Curry, you had Kenny Sampson, you had Ira Baston, you had Don Hobbs, you had Russ Petro. Um, I mean, just to name a few, them was them were the every week contenders everywhere we went around yeah, here. Yeah, and so there was a lot of good, a lot of good drivers, and then. Of course, at Hopstock, you had your weekly cars that run there, which was 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 uh, Tommy Tommy Helfrick, and uh, there was a guy named J.T. Harris. There was about four or five or six guys that were from that area down in there that that were contenders to win there every Sunday night, and uh, so I, I think I mean. I can't remember if I started sixth or eighth or somewhere in the feature that night at that thrust 100 and i ended up working my way to the front and i passed tommy um about 30 laps into the race and ended up winning yeah. winning that that race that night it was my first feature race was at at the and a big one hobstock and a big one to yeah, boot. Pay, do i do i yeah, have pay, this go how much how much was it to win john three thousand at that time a big deal right um well 1981 you can figure a tire was about $65. Yeah. You know? Let me, do I have it right? So you raced for your uncle and then Gene Dalton was next and masters built after that. There was a little Ray Godsey in there. Kind of as we start to circle around in 19, is that order, right? Your uncle, then the famous Gino, Gene Dalton, and then masters built or how, do I have that order? Right. Well, I had, oh, I had a car, my, my own after I drove for my uncle, I, okay. we ran a, I feel, I filled that car that my uncle had for a year. And we won some races that year. Actually, it was the first race I'd ever won at Brownstown was in my own car. Okay. In 1980, it was in 1985. And and I started last in that feature um, at Brownstown. It was a twin twin feature race that night. And how you finish the first one's how they invert the start, like about 10 spots or something and the second one and uh but i started last in the first one virtue of just not qualifying very good and uh, i won that was my first feature win at brownstown and then and ray Gotti was second and then we got inverted back in that second feature and if i'm not mistaken um he he ran second in the second feature and I ran third or he ran third and I ran fourth, but he, he, he beat me the second feature that night. 
but um, he would have started in the front on the first one, and I started last. So that was, and then that that was in '85, and um, actually the biggest paying race I had of the year at Hobstadt, I won it in my own car, and then they had a race uh, like a USAC race, I think it was, or something at Bloomington, and I won it in my car, and then the next year is when I drove for Geno. Okay. And then, and then after Gino was Masters built the first time, right? Did you yeah. go, you did some, yeah. Gu- yeah, okay. That's what I thought. Um, yeah. you know, and you've mentioned this a couple of times and I can't talk to you and not, and you, you've kind of touched on it a little bit. You go to Brownstown in the mid eighties and the early nineties, Ray Gatsy, Russ Petro, John Gill, the O'Neills, Steve Barnett, Jim Curry, Mike Jewell, Kevin Claycomb. To me, that is, and always will be in the history of dirt late model racing, the toughest weekly and kind of not even regional, small region competition ever. And it all kind of stemmed out of Brownstown. You throw in the fact that Bloomquist and Pierce and Moyer and Purvis, those guys were always popping into Brownstown. Try to put that into perspective for people. You cut your teeth there. This wasn't just a weekly late model track, was it? It was the place to race through from the mid eighties and the mid nineties. It absolutely was. It was the it was the highlight of every track around to people come come to Brownstown because it was always so competitive there and and you left out Jack Boggs in that right, mix of people right. that, that came there a lot. Um and when Scott first started coming there he he he'd you know, he'd go away mad time and time again for, for the first few years because he couldn't he couldn't find that sweet spot there, you know, and Tommy and Helfrich raced there for years and years and he was the king at Hobstadt, Paducah, um, ran run extra well, exceptionally well at Eldor, a lot of a lot of places. He was you know, in the seventies and the eighties and then the early nineties, he was he was a competitor, tough, you know, competitor, always had fine equipment, but never could find victory lane at Brownstown hardly, you know, and he'd it, the feature would be going on. You'd see his car on the hauler and out, out of the gate they'd go. You know, it'd be go go away mad again. You know, but it was um, it was just a track where there was always tough competition. The track was um, you had to race the track, not the competitors yeah. there. You know, and that's and people would come there and they'd have a hot setup and they'd you know they might qualify well and then by the time feature would roll around they'd be scratching their head wondering what happened you know i do and um, it just I, I just look back so fondly and the guys that left brownstown would be so good other places too you'd go to west plains or cedar lake or eldora and they traveled well that that told me all i needed to know about how good it was you know yeah you know yeah one time in 1986 when i was driving for gene uh, i don't you ever remember ben hess you ever yeah, heard of him yeah 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 well he came came there and 1986 and had a big nice which of course it was open trailer everybody had open trailers back then pretty much uh exception only a few and he rolled in there with a brand new bullet car and they come in there and of course it was all new and everything was all spiffied up you know and had the back of his car all covered up he goes out there and sets fast time well that night uh in gino's car we had some engine troubles early in the night um, I don't remember if we broke a rocker arm or a push rod or something, and we had to go get the guy that built our motors at the time. He was in the grandstands, and we sent for him. He come down there and worked on the car, and it was a 
fire drill trying to get it ready for the feature and we got ready and and i started back in the back and of course that ben s he started in the front because i had trouble qualifying that night with the motor and stuff and the heat race was but went bad and anyways worked our way up through there and, and ended up winning the race and i and after i passed him he went to, he just went backwards you know and and backwards and when they went away, when they went out of there, they had, they lost their blanket somehow in the mix of going from a fast time and a brand new bullet, Ray Callahan riding shotgun in the truck. They lost that blanket on the way out the gate, <laughs> but uh, I do. Uh, yeah, you know, it was tough. It I, was tough there. I do so much research for these interviews. I talked to a lot of people that were close to you and I asked them all the same question. Do you think John Gill was underrated? And I know I'm biased, but you know your career—two North South wins, two Jackson 100 wins, two UMP national titles, multiple good runs at Eldora, five top tens in the World 100, including a third. I know I'm biased, and I know you're a humble guy. But somebody that really knows your career well said, when he was at his peak, he was as good as Moyer and Bloomquist in the '90s. Do you feel like you're underrated a little bit, John, historically? Uh, I don't know. I wouldn't ever. I wouldn't say that. I've had a lot of fun doing it, and I never. I just, um, I don't know. I was, I figured I was as good as any of them, you know, in my, you know, at any given time at a certain point, certain track, equal equipment. I figured I was, I mean, they, they all knew if they'd come to Brownstown or, you know, whenever I was at the track and my night went well, it was, I was a competitor. That's all, that's all you can ask for. I, I, and I was, I tried to race with, with dignity, you know, yeah. it wasn't always run, run into somebody, knock them out of the way to, to, to win the race. But I race somebody how they race me usually. Well, you'll have me out there always saying you're underrated. So you've at least got that going for you. Okay. I'll tell everybody else. So you no. don't have to, <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've referenced you as the cowboy a few times. I think when the dust settles on your life and career, you will be the modern day cowboy to so many. The famous cowboy hat, the boots, or the the jeans tucked into the boots. I've never asked you this before. Were you actually a cowboy? Did you just like the look, or how, you know, how did that come to be? And because everyone knows you as the cowboy, were you actually a cowboy? Uh, no, I don't. No, I never did ride the range. I'll put it that way. But I, but I grew up around horses my whole life. My dad always had horses. My sister had horses, and um. And, you know, as I grew up, I had horses and um, got into riding mules. Um, I've always had, I always pleasured hunting and uh, got into coon hunting. And, and back in the 80s, early 80s, I hunted with a guy and he had some mules. And I thought that was, that was the kind of the ticket, you know, you could ride them at night. And so I got me one and then ended up with two and, and, uh, so, you know, we'd, I'd ride them at night, you know, I'd haul them around in the truck, back of a pickup truck. And, um, so we'd ride to the dogs and get treated. We'd ride into the woods and I, we went to, I went around a lot of the horse deals, you know, but as far as being, a like a camper or a trail rider and all that, I wasn't really into that much as just just you know i I liked horses but i I wouldn't consider myself really a cowboy but my my uncle was kind of a hero of mine and he was a he rode horses all the time and of course he had the dress the western dress button snap button shirts and cowboy boots and that's (laughs) 
he was my hero, so I kind of picked that up off him, I guess. And you just started wearing the cowboy hat to the racetrack? Like, you, you, you were kind of wearing it because of your uncle, and you just showed up at the racetrack with a cowboy hat on one day, I guess. Yeah, well, I guess, yeah. I'd, you know, I'd wear them around and, you know, going going to the horse sales or, you know, riding around some here and stuff. But, yeah, I just always kind of was in the Western mode. I, I like the, I guess, the Western apparel as much or more than anything, probably. I, I say all the time, if I'm ranking the top five coolest or most badass-looking cars in the history of late model racing, Scott's Black 18 is on the list, Freddie's Bazooka car is on the list, and your Black 75 is has got to be on the list. Do, do you love it as much as I did? Because I think it is the coolest-looking race car ever, that black with a silver 75. Yeah, it was a pretty car. It was a beautiful car, yeah. Um, had, you know, had nice letters on it back then, and we had good signs, you know, sign guy doing the letters. And um, car car was always straight. We kept it kept it up nice, and, and uh, that's pretty much, you know, I my my number was i adopted the number off my uncle's car um and that's that was my number 75 when i first started racing which was his number that's how i got it you know what i'm saying right. how that came along but then through through my different endeavors driving for gene i was 96 i read 96 and that was always his number and so when i drove his car i, I ran his number you know and and wasn't ever superstitious per se to like what I had to have this or you know had to have a certain color or you know had to be this way or that way it was just um the uh, the things that come along you know what I'm saying and so when I drove Gene's car it was 96 and then when I drove for Masterbuilt's first house car it was Indiana one Indiana one the, yeah yeah white car with the with the yellow number and yeah. the red top and the red red hood scoop and blue side spoilers and and it was painted up really nice and and a well-kept car and had a lot of had a lot of fun in that car and a lot won a lot of races and traveled around all over the country you know and that with that car and then and then in the 92 when i started back driving for them again they put my number on their car and and the, they were more or less retired the Indiana One car pretty much. Yeah. And, uh, and then after that, when I drove for Terry, um, we he he allowed me to use my number. His Terry's number was sixty nine. The yep. first few times I drove Terry's car, I run it with his body on it. You know, it was a red car with a sixty nine on. It. Actually, the first time I won the Jackson One Hundred in Terry's car, I remember. Yep. Red, red 69. Yep. Well, I can't talk. Well, red, red top is a black sides with a right. with the red top on it. Yeah. I, I just, I just love the car so much. It was such a crisp line and it, it makes me think of a particular night when I think of that car. I can't talk to you without talking about the 1995 dirt late model dream and quick history lesson for those that do not know this, John led the first 77 laps. Bloomquist was on him, but Scott couldn't really get around him. The yellow comes out, and it resets things. Scott was able to get you on the restart, and I think everyone there that night, including a heartbroken 13-year-old Michael Rigsby, agrees, if not for the caution that night, 
you win the race, you win $100,000, and everything that comes along with a major victory at Eldora. Do you think about that night often, and do you think your career would have been different, John, had you won that race in 95? Well, absolutely. You know, anytime you can win a major, any major event, especially one at Eldora, which is the crown jewel of all of them, pretty much. They might be more races pay, some races pay more or whatever, but at, at any cost, you you always wanted to win, win one, one big one at Eldor, you know, and the world, the dream, whatever it might be. And, um, my car, it just, we actually built that car just for Eldor. You know, we'd raced, uh, in 94, I ran really well up there. And then in 95, we, we built this car and with, with intentions for running, uh, at Eldor and we, we raced at different tracks, but it didn't seem to suit any tracks as well as the bigger tracks. It just, that car seemed to handle better. It seemed to run better on all the bigger tracks. Um, it wasn't very good at Brownstown. So we, we just kind of, we had two cars that year and that car there was the one that we, um, elected to run at Eldor every time. And, and, um, we went up there and it, everything was in place. It was run well. Gary had the car, you know, maintenance well. Everything was good on it. And, uh, you know, it just, it was just one of those unfortunate things that happened that, you know, I had a, not a big lead, but a sizable enough lead that I had no pressure, you know, and then, yeah. then the caution comes out late in the race. And then, um, Scott lays back and gets run on me on a restart, which, that's you know just how it worked and um and he he gets in front of me and actually i'd closed the gap back up on him again and was catching him and then they had another caution with a few laps uh, eight or ten to go or something and then that just took all the hopes i had of, of getting by him getting back by him at that point and it, it didn't happen what was the know? yellow so for it was it bart hartman was the yellow what was it Honestly, I think it was for Terry Phillips. Uh, the other seventy, the other seventy-five. Yeah. <laughs> yep. 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 James Essex told me that you once told him that the one goal in your racing career was to get on the back of an Eldora T-shirt. I mean, I knew obviously you wanted to win a race there, but I didn't know if James is right about that—that that it was that important to you. You know that, and it, that likely won't happen now. Winning a Dreamer World for you is that a hard pill to swallow? Oh, no, not really. Um, I, uh, I did win a Johnny Apple seat up there. Yeah. Um, but, um, I mean, I won some other races, a Snoko race up there and stuff at different times, but, um, no, uh, would I say I was somewhat disappointed? Yeah, I would, if I said I wasn't, I'd be lying, but you know, am I going to lose any sleep over it? Probably not now, you know, but <laughs> you know, but coming to Eldor, I would, I would, you know, lay awake at night, you know, thinking, what can we do? You know, what would be something we could make the car do this, make it better? You know, it was always a priority to run good there. Did and you, even yeah. the first time, first time I went there, I, I, the first time I'd ever went to Eldor was in 1980. Um, I actually went there probably in 81 and then in 82, maybe in 83, I think we went up there and, um, was running on a Sunday afternoon as world outlaw race, Sunday afternoon show daytime. 
and I was running second and I was closing in on the guy leading it and I blew a motor. And, uh, and I knew after that, if I'd ever get a good car to go back up there, I'd have, I could run there good there. You yeah, know? yeah. And, uh, so then went back there in my own car in 85, we never had no, no luck and went there with Gene and, um, we took uh, two cars up there and made the race. Um, I don't remember where I finished. That was in 80 and 86 and then 87. I went with Keith and Tater and we, we had a good car there in 87 was, um, won a heat race started on the started started six. I think it was in the feature and had some mechanical problems and just, just things that just didn't cooperate. Then we went to the million dollar race that time. I drove for Joel Hedrick and a car that I'd only ran a couple of times, just leading up to that race there, trying to get it, um, comfortable in it to go there. And we didn't have much luck, but I, I did finish in the top 10 in that million dollar race yeah. there, you know, in, in his car. And, uh, won a won a heat race which was probably one of the most memorable heat races i'd ever won um ever and it was uh coming for the checkered um in 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 that car and everybody got bungled they i dropped back i wasn't even going to make the race i was going to end up being in the concert the power that the, you're talking about the slider you threw in turn three where you passed like 10 cars i feel like right yep <laughs> yeah. yep and yeah. won the heat race yeah, yeah it was unbelievable and, yeah the the, the dream yeah. was in 95 that i referenced a year later in november of 96 I, you know i wouldn't call it a famous moment more of an infamous moment in your career um, your late model career is really great at this point. You have, a, a, you know, a really bad ARCA wreck at Atlanta Motor Speedway, a bad injury to your left arm. Um, I don't think people appreciate, John, how bad that injury was. Can can you take me through that? Just th- that injury was pretty serious from that wreck, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. It was pretty ugly. Yeah, it, um, it was just a. It was another one of those situations where I got into a bad spot. Um, we'd qualified like 10th in that arc of race, which was the first time I'd ever been on a, on a speedway track. And, um, we'd went down there and, and practiced a couple of weeks before, and we had a good test session down there and was looking forward to that race. And then, so we, the day of the race, um, we start the race there and get going. And, uh, my car was really, really running well. And I had a car, which was um, uh, Mickey Hudsmith. No, that's the guy that caused the wreck. I'm trying to think the guy's name. He was he was running a cup in in cup, but he was trying to do some testing. He was in had an ARCA car there, and um, he was sponsored by Diamond Rio. And anyways, he he got in behind me and was drafting me, and we came from like tenth, eleventh up to like sixth in just a few laps it, it wasn't very long into the race and um and as we was going down the front stretch there the spotter come on the on the radio and said watch the car in front of you he's all over the track well we came off a of turn two and this guy was way ahead of me at the time and um but with the car drafting me we run this guy down like by the time we get to turn three 
I'm, I'm up on him, you know, catching him pretty good. Well, he, he runs down on the apron of the racetrack and his car gets loose and he gets all squirreled out and he loses it. And I let out the gas and the guy that was behind me, he just barely did bump me in the right rear quarter. Just, just a nudge, just bump. And it, when he hit me in the right rear, it just turned my car to the right. And I was just out of control at that yeah. point. I was just alone for the ride. And it, and it, and it ends up, um, the guy that actually that husband boy, he hit the wall and turned over and he ended up losing his, his left arm in the accident. And my left arm was compound fractured, shattered, like bone fragments all in my arm. And it, it broke my neck in a couple places, um, deflated my lung and just had a severe concussion. And like it, it destroyed that car that I was in it along with hitting the wall at say 180 mile an hour. I got T-boned at probably 160, 180 mile an hour. And, um, it just, uh, it knocked tubing out of the car. In fact, NASCAR impounded that car for a week. Um, before they'd release it because it was tore up so bad that they, they tried to study it to find out what they could do to make them better. So obviously you're, you're listing these injuries off. Uh, you attempt, you know, we'll talk about the Gary DeWitt thing when you come back the next year and, and try <laughs> to race at Brownstown. But before we get to that, this is a, a simple question. What a dumb way to ask it, but how much did that affect your ability to then drive a dirt late model after that? I mean, just, I can't imagine your body was the same, right? It had to have a big impact on you. Well, it didn't, it didn't affect me as per se as my ability, but it, it, um, I mean, of course that was the end of a year of of racing for me in, in November, you know, so um, by the time I get back home, I spent a week in the hospital down there and they flew me actually, um, a guy flew me in a medical plane from Atlanta in a, in a Learjet back to Bedford. Um, was fortunate enough to a guy that raced ARCA, he, he had a medical airbag service and they, they put me on a jet and flew me back, back to home. Um, cause I actually wasn't able to make a drive, you know, a drive at that point. And, uh, so, um, so that was in middle, say no middle of November, the end of November. And by the middle of January, I was scheduled for another operation on my arm again. The doctor down there butchered me up. And, um, um, so I was having complications with my hand and my wrist. I couldn't, I couldn't close my, my, I couldn't open my hand up. I couldn't bend my wrist back and I couldn't, I couldn't open my hand. So I was fortunate enough to get, um, an appointment with Terry Trimmel, which was a world famous doctor for Indy cars and cart and all that through. And I, and I got him through Mark cancer and, um, he scheduled me for an uh, operation. So in the last of January, I was back in Indianapolis getting operated on again. And fortunate enough, I through his, the God of his guidance of his hand, I, I my arms normal. You know, my hand works, my wrist works, and everything works as it should. But if uh, I hadn't got a hold of him or got a, a good doctor, I would have probably been crippled from that. And do you think, again, it's a simple way to ask this, but do you think 
and I don't mean this in a negative way, but do you think your late model career was ever the same after that wreck? Well, here's it had a chain of events that happened at that point. Okay. Um, it, it, it would be questionable at some point if people were looking from the outside, but what happened is, um, the cars changed at that point from 96 through 90, um, Seven ninety-eight. That's when everything started changing. They they went from shock behind shock right? in front yeah. Yeah, shock to behind. shock behind, and I got lost in the, I got lost in the draft right there for a couple of years and got got behind on technology. Um, as far as my ability, no, it didn't affect it any. Okay. Um, did it affect my? It did affect the way I looked at racing, or or did I have any? Uh, per se, like most people say, well, he's, he's lost it. He's, you know, he'll never be no good anymore. No, that, that wasn't really the case. It was like, I was, I was in the wrong boat at the wrong time right there. You know, I, my, my technology part didn't transpire fast enough, but I won some bigger races after that. I mean, you know, I won a 10,000 win race at Danville and Scott was there. Um, everybody was there. It was a big race. And, um, Mr. DeWitt had my car right on the money, and we we got the we got the checker. Well, speaking of Mr. So, DeWitt, if there was anything good that came out of the Arca wreck, and obviously nothing good, but if there is one good thing, it's one of the great mysteries and hilarious stories in the history of dirt late model racing. You like you said, you have your wreck in November of '96. You're not cleared after that surgery by Doctor Trammell to race in March of '97, but you decide, John, this won't do. You enter a race at Brownstown in March of 97 under the name of your crew chief and buddy, Gary DeWitt. You compete all night under the name Gary DeWitt in one of the more funny, surreal moments in late model history. I, I got to hear more about this. How did you guys hatch this scheme? And did everybody in the pits know that it wasn't Gary in the car? How did this all go? <laughs> well, pretty much. I'm sure they and the competitors probably knew, but we parked out in the we didn't park in the pits. We parked out in the parking lot. Just kind of keep out of the radar as much as possible there. And, you know, it was the icebreaker, if I remember right. Yes, yep. um, and, um, w- you know, we go out there and, you know, it was, it was a, you know, major race. And, um, the, the thing about it was my arm, I, I couldn't even get my helmet on yeah. that, that, that time. I, I couldn't raise my arm high enough to, to pull my helmet down on my head. I couldn't buckle it. I couldn't pull it down. I could move it, but I couldn't raise it up high. I, I just wasn't mobile enough. It just wouldn't work. You know, um, I'd only been, been less than two months since I'd had it operated on and they'd fused the bone in there and put a split it from the shoulder to my elbow and put a plate on it and screwed it together. And it just, um, my shoulder was, had been taken apart through the process of trying to, to uh fix it and it just wasn't wasn't strong enough i I couldn't raise it so anyways it was probably not the smartest thing i'd ever did in my (laughs) life you know when when you do things sometimes you don't always do it as the book would tell you to do it and uh so so we decided that i was gonna race and i made a plate and put on my arm out of aluminum and velcroed it to my arm where that bone was broken and and um go out and i actually ran 
second or third that night. Tony won the race. Yeah, Tony won. That's right. And that was the first time he'd ever won, I think, at Brownstown. And and I, if I would have been able to go out and look at the track and and pick my tires like I should have, like I normally would have done, I, I don't think he would have won the race. I just had the wrong tires on for that night. And we ran good, but we just didn't well, win the race. But what would you, you know? have done, John, if you had won? You'd have had to get out of the car. Ladies and gentlemen, Gary DeWitt. Wait a minute. That's John Gill. What, you, you almost had to get second, didn't you? <laughs> well, well, I told him. I said, well, if I win, you know, I can't go to Victory Lane. I'm going to have to drive back over here, Gary. You're going to have to get in and drive it over there, I guess. <laughs> so I'd, I would at that point, I would have had, help, had to have help to get out anyway. So. I, it wasn't like I was going to make a fast move and get in and out, and he was going to drive it over there. Oh. I couldn't even get my helmet off. Oh, God. I, I love that story so much. It, it's kind of crazy how that's taken on a life of its own, that story, right? I mean, everybody knows that story, and I, I just love it so much. Yeah. Well, so post, post-Arcorec, John, you know, call it 97 through like the mid-2000s, that's seven, eight, nine, ten years. Describe that part of your career to me. What it was like, you know, like you said, the technology's transitioning. You've had this bad wreck. What was that next eight to ten years of your career like for you? Well, it was it was it was frustrating to say the least. But you know, I just sometimes you when you get in bed with somebody and you you make you know you're you know you're, you got a car to drive and you know it ain't always the best situation. But you know you've had luck in the past, you've had good relations in the past there, and then all of a sudden everything's going south and and I was just in the wrong area, I guess best way to put it, because the technology wasn't sprung around here into that shock behind as well as it was other places. And and some people are stubborn to change and 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 not too too stubborn to to look around, I guess to say and until it's too late you know what i'm saying when you're a year or two behind but when you adapt to something then you're just behind starting from the start to the finish you know and that can cost you several years right it's not just one year it can cost you several years right in a way exactly yep and is that just you don't have to say names if you don't want to are you talking car owners and stuff you were driving for at that time we're kind of behind is that what you're saying car owners yeah well chassis builders yeah Yeah. pretty much it'd be be not owners as much as just the chassis builders, you know, I mean, yeah. you know, I'm in this area and that's what we'd always had in the past. And it just, at that point it wasn't working, you know, and, and you, you keep thinking, well, they'll get it figured out or, you know, this or that. And I'll do, you know, and without going to test and doing the proper thing to try to advance your technology, you're, you're caught in a cocoon there. You can't get out of it. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? You're just, you're, you're stuck. You, and, um, yeah, and that was, you know, that probably carried into the mid-2000s for you, and that kind of was, you know, you had stopped racing super late models as much kind of in the mid to late 2000s then, right? Uh, probably no, not until the later twenty thirteen, yeah, 14, yeah. somewhere in there. You, I, I have to, I want you to share this. You, When I talked to you on the phone the other day, and that's the last couple of things before we get to true or false. We've, we're going on an hour and you're doing, I just love it. I could go on and on with you. You told me an awesome Scott Bloomquist story about the 1990 Herald and Review 100. 
uh, share that story with me because I want you know about the dinner and the the pay the check. Yeah. Share that Bloomquist okay. story real quick. <laughs> okay. Well, we we we're going. We're in Peoria, Illinois, at a fellow's garage. I didn't even know, and he had shared his garage with with me and Scott to to work on our cars. And we get there, and I and I got to change engines, and I've got one guy with me. There's just me and one fella, and uh, we're we're trying. We're going to have to change motors and get the car ready and to go to the track. So by the time we get everything cleaned up and get stuff undone, Scott, he's in there changing motors. Well, he he takes his time, and they're messing around, and I'm like, damn, Scott, are you going to hurt like get done today or? He's like, well, you don't want to go there anyway, do you? And I go, well, not really, but I'm going. Well, don't worry about it. He says, well, just don't worry about it. I go, well, I'm, I'm kind of worried about it because it's <laughs> time to go. Well, he dicks around until finally it's like, you know, has to leave. Shocking and development. So find- Scott's running late. Shocking yeah. development, right? <laughs> yeah, well, he's late. He makes me real late. You know what I'm saying? By the time he gets out of there, it puts me way behind. Him. I only got one guy, so. So we, we get the motor changed and we, we roll in there and make the, the deal. And, you know, I'm at making and I'm not, and I'm not real happy about having to be there, but I'm there, you know, and I'm going to make the best of it. So we go out there and I have, um, the, the rules that year, they wouldn't allow any pit men in the infield. Of course, the infield's so small. They yeah. said, so, so what you can do, you can take tires, tools, whatever into the infield in the designated pit area, but no pit men. So if per se, if something happens, you're going to have to do it yourself. Or if another driver's out of the race or whatever, and he's there, he, he can, if he wants to help you, he can. So, so that's how the rules were that night. So lo and behold, I don't know, I'd run about 30 laps or so and I'd had some issues. And so I'm pulled, I'm pulled into the infield and waiting to get basically back across the track to get out. Well, they had a had a yellow, uh, a red flag. Maybe it must have been maybe a red. Well, Scott comes tooling up to his pile of tires there, and he's revving his motor up and he's screaming. And he's there's a young guy there that had been burnt. He had one arm was kind of like in a messed up in a sling or something. And Scott's trying to get him to change his left rear tire on his car. Well, he he can't do it. He's he can't only got one hand. Well, he can't do it. And so I, I ran over there and I Jackie's car, get it changed. Long story short, I changed the tire for him and he gets back out, gets his spot back. And, and the more he ends up winning the race, of course. So, so it, we're on the summer nationals and it may have not have been that night, may have been the next night. We're, we're all tooling into the same truck stop. And after the race and I go in there, me and my buddy that was helping me at the time, and we sat down to eat and Scott and his mom and all of his, all of his crew come in there and they sat down at the table. Well, well, I get done eating and get up. I walk over there at his table and I handed him my ticket. And I said, you're going to get this. And he looks at me and shoves the ticket back at me and says, uh, I ain't buying your dinner. I said, really? I said, you're not going to buy my dinner after I changed your tire for you at Macon and you and you win the race you win that race because i changed your tire and you won't buy my dinner and he looked at me and his mom looked at him and says scott get the ticket 
And Scott, <laughs> Scott like looks at me, he's like, "Oh, you bastard!" He and he picks up the ticket, you know, and kind of gives me that smirk, like, "Oh, if it wasn't for my mom, you know what I'm saying?" Uh, and uh, I said, "I thought you'd do that." And and she just kind of looked at me and smiled, and that was that was a Scott story. But, don't yeah. you think, John? That heyday. Late 80s, early 90s, mid 90s, when it's you and Moyer and Boggs and Purvis and Fry and Blue. Isn't there something so much more romantic about that era of late model racing? And it, I love the racing now, but there's something special about that time, isn't there? It was it was quite unique. Yeah, everybody was everybody raced hard. There was a lot of you know a lot of technology coming up through the sport at that time, motor stuff, and everybody. And you know the funny thing about it, back in those in that era of time, most everybody of those drivers that you named, ninety nine percent of them all raced you with respect, yeah. and and they drove hard, and and you know that's how everybody raced. You, you nobody they didn't give you nothing, but they did that they didn't, you know, run over their head and and tear your stuff up at night in and night out, you know. You had one of the more famous sponsors in late model racing on your car. Not really a sponsor, it was the bar you owned, Jack's Lounge. People don't realize your dad was Jack and he had the restaurant before you did. Um people don't realize it was a really good steakhouse in Mitchell, Indiana. And is this right? Didn't Bobby Knight and some of those guys and some of some other famous Indiana people come eat at this steakhouse sometimes? Yeah, Bobby Knight, he frequented there quite a bit. Um, he came there, and actually, when he when he coached the Olympic team, he brought he brought the whole Olympic coaching staff down there. There was fourteen of them come down there to eat, wow. eat dinner. And when they done the movie on Bobby Knight, and Nick Nolte was playing Bobby Knight in the movie, he brought Nick Nolte and the movie producers down to my place. To oh so, man, yeah. that is cool. I did not know that. Oh yeah. Did um did anybody did, did like Melon Camp ever come? I mean, he's from Seymour. Anybody else like that ever come, John? Ne- never did have him come through there. No, had had some other people that were musicians that played in bands and stuff that that came through there at different times, but not not any um not not John Mellencamp. No. A, a great regret of my life is that I never ate at Jack's Lounge. I always heard how freaking good it was because the steaks were unbelievable, right? It was like an awesome steakhouse. Yeah, yeah, I had great steaks, and of course, I had everything—seafood, shrimp, and lobster. Um, but but the specialty was prime rib. There, yeah. that's what that's what everybody come to to get. Yeah. One of the other things you didn't mention it before we get to true or false that you do right now. You briefly talked about it was coon hunt. You raise and compete with coon hunting dogs, and you've been really successful. I think it's you've won like twenty or thirty thousand dollars in the last couple of years. How did this come about? And is it a little bit depressing that you can win more money coon hunting than you can racing now? I think a little not not you personally, but the coon hunters they pay more money to win these shows than some of these stock car races do. Some of them they do. Yeah, that's correct. Um, I, when I was always through my whole younger life and everything I always hunted. Um, it just gave me a opportunity to get, get away from being, you know, in a tavern, you know what I'm saying yeah. at night. And, um, so it was night hunting of course. And then when we'd get done hunting, I could come back and the tavern would still be open. And that's actually how I met up with the guy that took me the first time that I went was he'd go hunting. And then after he'd get done hunting, he'd come by there and, usually shoot pool or have a sandwich or something or, or, um, 
drink and go home, you know? And so one time he said, Hey, you want to go hunting with me? And I was about 18 years old, I think. And I said, uh, sure. I'd go with you one night. And so anyways, it was all that all from there. I took off, but, um, when I raced, I couldn't do the competitions cause they're always on the weekends. So I wasn't ever into the competition hunting because I was always into the racing competition, you know? So after I, you know, quit racing then I, it opened up another door for me to be able to go to the competition coon hunts, you know? And so, uh, what is the just key? Been luck- What's the, and you didn't, you win? you won 20 grand. Is that right? Coon hunting? Uh, one, my one dog is one twenty over 20,000 wow. bucks. Yeah. What's the key, John? Yeah. What makes a good coon hunter? Oh, uh, you just have to have a good dog. Really? I mean, that's, <laughs> that's, you have to be, but you have to put a lot of time into it. There's a lot of work involved. People don't realize that you're out every night, you know, you go without sleep. It's kind of like racing. You stay up late at night and get up early and go to work. And, you know, you, if you're going to make them as dogs be good, you got to, put them out there in the woods you know and right. and fine-tune them it's just like pretty much racing your son remington he raced for a little bit i don't know if he's racing anymore did he ever think that a racing career was for him and how you know did you were you helping him with that or how did all that go well it just he you know he wanted to do it but i i was opposed to him doing it really um until he could do it on the right in the right manner. Well, he kind of thought he wanted to do it his way. So he's done it his way and, um, started out in the crate car and he actually drove for one of my buddies starting out. And, um, the crate series is, it's a crazy series. All those cars are so, so competitive and they're still as expensive as a late model and people get their own, their own, outlook at crate racing because it's not a cheaper way to race you know it costs the same to get to the track it costs the same to get into the track as it does a late model sure but you're running for for almost half the money if that right the cars the car is the same exact car as a late model it's just got a different motor in it yeah and then then and so you've got all these cars maybe 20 of them that's tied in a knot out there and you can't get away from nobody and 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 not due to lack of respect, but just out of lack of, of, um, talent, they, they just run into you all the time. So you're always getting tore up. You're always getting wrecked. You're always getting a flat tar. You're always getting something from somebody just not deliberately, but just, you know, through lack of, you know, talent, they right. run over you. Right. And, uh, and so it's it ends up being real expensive. And then and with that being said, he just couldn't afford it. You know, he was trying to do it himself. He had a truck, he had a trailer, you know, and you know, my shop and stuff and I tried to help him as much as I could with getting parts and, you know, stuff to help him, but I couldn't go to the track with him much, you know. It just it just wasn't wasn't in it for me. You know what I'm saying? It didn't me and him was like oil and water at the track. <laughs> you know? I think it's a lot of fathers and sons that race together, right? That happens at some point. So, yeah, well. I could probably go if I sat in the grandstands, but I couldn't go and and be in the pits. You yeah. know what I'm saying? And so, anyways, and then it just got to where he couldn't afford it. You know, and so he's not doing it anymore. 
Well, I, I end every single Rigsby report I do, and this has been a, an unbelievable last hour with a couple true or false questions. Uh, they're lighthearted, fun, true or false questions. So I got three or four for you. So here we go. True or false with John Gill, my childhood hero. True or false question number one. The first race you ever won at Brownstown was not in a motorized vehicle. You won a bicycle race at the age of 10 at Brownstown. Is that true or false? True. <laughs> on, yep. on the actual dirt track, you're on a bicycle? I need a little more context around that. <laughs> yeah, they had a bike race for kids up there one night, and I wasn't 10. I was actually 12. Okay. And so I I practiced. I rode my bike. I mean, I was, I was destined to win that race. So, yeah, I did win a bicycle race. Was James Essex announcing? Was he announcing that race also? I, I can't, oh my, I can't imagine. I don't, was I don't, I don't think so. He would have been, he was younger. He's younger than I am. He would have been, he would have been in there in the nursery somewhere yeah. if he was there. Okay. Second question, true or false? I have heard this about you. And this is a quote from one of your friends. John Gill is allergic to wedding cake. <laughs> is that true or false? And can you offer us any context around that? I, I've been told that's what the story is. I guess I might be allergic to it. I don't know. <laughs> How allergic are we talking here, John? Are we talking like really allergic or eh, a mild irritation to, to wedding I, cake? I don't know. I, I ain't into the – I can't hardly – I don't know <laughs> I might be pretty real allergic to it, I guess. <laughs> You've never been married before, right? Or have you been married? No, I have not. Well, I'd say you're pretty allergic then. If you're if you're 62, yeah. I'd say you might need some Benadryl, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's what I need. Okay, now I, I, I mentioned this question earlier in the interview, but I'm still going to ask it, and I want an honest answer out of you. True or false, you used to hit on my mom when she was around at the racetrack. Is that true or false? Uh, that's a maybe. <laughs> a maybe. Hey, you do have a nice looking mother. Now I ain't gonna sit here and say that you don't. And so, um, no, no. Well, I, yeah, I said hi to her. <laughs> I said hi. Listen, this isn't a game of maybe. This is true or false. I'm putting that in the true column. All right, I'm putting it in the true column okay. right now. <laughs> the worst part is my mom, and I'm just—I can't believe I'm admitting this. My mom would always say, "He's just so handsome." All right, I don't need to hear this, mom. I don't need to hear this from you. Okay. Uh, all right uh final true or false question Uh, and this is more of an opinion but i think the answer is true you are the best driver to don the number 75 of all time better than phillips better than hartman i think you're the best 75 of all time true or false oh i wouldn't go there i i all those guys probably done much or more than i have but um i think i i think i've represented the number well i think um Larry Phillips is a hero yeah, of mine. I yeah. really didn't know. I didn't know Bart's dad per se. I, I never did. I've seen him, but I never did ever know him or wasn't around him any, but Larry Phillips was a, he was a true racer, a hardcore to the core race car driver. Yeah. I mean, he, he, he made a living doing it and that's probably, he's probably better than I am. I'd have to say that. Yeah. And I, and I'm not taking anything away from, from Bart's dad by no means because I didn't know him but he had a he had a hell of a resume behind him so he must have been a he must have been one of the best too so 
Well, John, before I end the interview on a personal note, I don't have any notes sketched down from this, so I just want to speak from the heart. I really do believe that, you know, my entire career, I started Dirt on Dirt in 2007, and I have been around Dirt Late Model Racing my entire life. I don't think I would have had the career I had without John Gill. And I, and I really mean that. You were, you know, as a kid to me, you were more than just a hero of mine. You were, as you mentioned, incredibly gracious in the pits to me. You were kind when you didn't have to be. We really kind of fostered a good friendship over the years, and we don't talk near as much as I would like us to these days. But I, I just wanted to say thank you for that, and I really mean that. You you went above and beyond to treat me with a ton of respect, and I don't think Michael Rigsby develops the website Dirt on Dirt and now Flow Racing. I, I don't think any of those things happen if you're not a part of my life all those years. And I really mean that. You will forever be, especially as a child, my all-time favorite driver. And I just wanted to say thank you. You know, I don't know that I've ever told you that before. And, you, you know, your contributions to my life are, are many. And I just wanted to say thank you for that from the bottom of my heart. Well, I really appreciate that. That's a, that's a heck of a compliment. And I and I truly appreciate that. And, uh, and that's, that's kind of the way it was when I started, um, and kids come around, I always wanted to be kind to them. Um, and when I was a kid, there were some of the drivers wasn't so kind, but there were a few that were, you know what I'm saying? And I thought, you know, if I ever was able to do that, I'd pass that on, you know, and that's, um, that's kind of what I've always um, tried to race by and be kind to people. Well, it had an impact on this kid. I can tell you that. And it, it shaped my life and my career. And despite the fact that, that you hit on my mom, I still love you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love you too. And I'm proud of you. I'm glad you've, you've made a career out of racing and, and you've done well with it. You've represented the sport well, and you've, you've done a lot of things for a lot of people. And, and, uh, and I appreciate that. Michael, I do. I truly do. All right. Thanks, buddy. And, and like I said, I'll take you up on that offer. I'll be over there to Blacktop with you one day, okay? <laughs> All right. I'll be looking for you. All right. Thanks, John. Thank you. See you now. If you buy a car, truck, or van, new or used from Bomb Chevy Buick in Clinton, Illinois, you get a free lifetime, that's forever, by the way, till you're dead, subscription to Dirt on Dirt and Flow Racing. Literally, until you're dead. Check out bombchevybuick.com today. That's B-A-U-M, chevybuick.com. They are based just south of my house in central Illinois in Clinton, and they also happen to be incredible human beings. I love them very much, and I don't say that about a lot of human beings. The folks at Bomb are awesome. So if you need a car or truck, new or used, buy it from Bomb, and you get the added benefit of a lifetime subscription to Flow and Dirt on Dirt, and that's very cool. That was a lot of fun. I knew at some point I'd get John, but to be able to get him for an hour like that and just rehash some of our old memories together and things about his career, for me personally, that was probably one of the favorite interviews I've ever done uh, in my career. I'll be back in a few weeks with another Rigsby Report. I hope you guys are enjoying all the content on the website. Dirt on Dirt is still rolling it out at a record rate. And, and real quick on one thing. We are training a ton of new video shooters right now, guys and gals that are so eager to learn about the sport and go out there and shoot video. By and large, they are doing awesome, but we have some audio and lighting and color issues that come along with training new people that we may have not had before in the past on DOD. Just bear with us. Some new folks are in the mix. We're, we're building an army of shooters 
Uh, we, you know, it's a lot of work to cover a thousand races a year that we're covering now. I'm a freak about quality, so we will improve in any areas that we've lagged on for the past in Dirt on Dirt. You have my word on that, the Michael Rigsby seal of approval. I think I'm going to have Steve Francis on in a few weeks, I think. It's time to get Bevo on the hot seat, talk to him about his career, his new career with Lucas Oil, and Steve Francis is a guy that can tell stories forever. Uh, until then, thank you guys so much, and uh, we'll catch you on the next Rigsby Report. <laughs>